0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Well, today on the program, we're going to talk with John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about the Supreme Court hearing earlier today on the president's third iteration of a travel ban. Uh, Those oral arguments were heard today. Decision expected sometime this summer, probably late June. We'll also talk with Patrina Mosley. She's the Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy at the Family Research Council. There's a new um, Barna study that provides statistics on America's redefinition of family morality you might find interesting. We'll talk with um, Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. There's a bill in California that is written so broadly that it uh, would ban books, uh, including the Bible in certain areas, printed materials, and ads providing information without even necessarily recruiting, but providing information uh, regarding unwanted same sex attraction or gender confusion. This is uh, a step beyond what has been done up to this point. It's already passed in the House. It's currently in committee in the Senate where it's expected to pass and the governor to sign it. So what does this all mean? We'll also talk with Wes Walterman. He's the CEO of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. They're presenting two opportunities for a hymn sing coming up in the next couple of weeks. On May the 5th, there's an opportunity at Southwest Bible Church in Beaverton. The first time the Singing Christmas Tree is presented a hymn sing on the west side. So that's a great opportunity. There's a Uh, Chicken dinner ahead of time. If you'd like to join us at 430, you can get all the details. and We'll uh, share those with you later in the program. The second hymn sing will be held at New Hope Church in Happy Valley. That's coming up on the 12th. So the 5th on the west side, the 12th on the east side. And the same opportunity for dinner together before that hymn sing. And again, that's an opportunity not just to hear from the choir, but to sing with the choir as we all together lift our voices in song sharing uh, from the great hymns of the faith. So we'll talk with Wes Walterman more about that. By the way, it's a free event. Uh, You do need to have tickets. We need to make sure there's sufficient space for everyone who wants to come and join us in singing. Uh, There is a $10 charge for the chicken dinner, and um, we hope that you will uh, join us at one or both of those locations. Well, taking a look at some of the developing stories for the day, President Trump's attempt to end DACA suffered a court setback, with a judge giving the White House 90 days to justify its rollback of the Obama-era program. James Comey's uh, contact at Columbia University, who was uh, used to leak sensitive information to the media, once worked as a special government employee for the FBI. It has now been confirmed. And the Fresno State professor who bashed Barbara Bush after the former first lady's death will not be disciplined, the university's president announced. Dr. Ronnie Jackson, the president's embattled pick for the Veterans Affairs Secretary, faces a tough confirmation fight, even though Obama repeatedly praised his work. And billions in U.S. taxpayer dollars, earmarked for Afghanistan's rebuilding efforts, may have been lost because of mishandling by the World Bank, according to a watchdog group. First up, another DACA defeat for the president. The George W. Bush-appointed federal judge on Tuesday ruled that President Trump's decision to rescind the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, was unlawful and must be set aside. DACA's uh, rescission was arbitrary and capricious, he said because the department failed, apparently or rather adequately, to explain its conclusion that the government program was unlawful. U.S. District Judge John Bates wrote Bates, the third federal judge and the first Republican appointee to rule against the Trump administration attempted to kill DACA, wrote in his opinion that the Department of Homeland Security has 90 days to provide him with a more compelling reason for rolling back the Obama era program. Otherwise, he could order its restoration. Neither the meagre Legal reasoning nor the assessment of litigation risks provided by DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, to support this decision is sufficient to sustain termination of the DACA program, he wrote. Also, Comey's leak accomplice was a former employee, we've learned. that Columbia University law professor, James Comey, used as the go-between last year to leak the contents of sensitive memos to the media, some perhaps classified, confirmed that on Tuesday that he previously worked as a special government employee for Comey's FBI on an unpaid basis. The professor, Daniel Richmond, confirmed the special status in response to an inquiry from Fox News while referring other questions, including on the scope of his work to the FBI. I did indeed have SGE status, which is the special. Government employee status with the bureau for no pay. Richmond wrote in an email, Richmond emerged last year as the former FBI director's contact for leaking memos documenting his private discussions with President Trump's memos that are now the subject of an inspector general review over the presence of classified material. Sources familiar with Richmond's status at the FBI told Fox News that he was assigned to special projects by Comey and had a security clearance as well as badge access to the building. In other story, a Fresno State professor who celebrated the death of Barbara Bush in a profanity laced rant on Twitter will not be disciplined, the university's president said in a statement late yesterday. In a note to the campus community, Joseph Castro said the English instructor Randa Girard's comments about the first. The late first lady were insensitive, inappropriate and an embarrassment to the university, but are protected free speech under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Castro added that Girard would remain on leave through the spring semester, which she had previously requested before the incident. Hmm. By the way, a petition to fire her attracted some 10,000 signatures to little effect, apparently. Well, embattled Veterans Affairs nominee Dr. Ronnie Jackson showed no sign of withdrawing his nomination as more details of accusations against him emerged, ranging from repeated drunkenness to a toxic work environment as he served as a top White House physician. Jackson fought to convince lawmakers of his leadership abilities as President Trump told reporters he would always stand by Jackson. And while Trump said it would be Jackson's choice on whether to withdraw his nomination, he added I really don't think personally he should seek the position. Well, the president suggested. He did not want Jackson, who has served as a White House physician since 2006, to go through such an ugly and disgusting process, and said he told him what do you uh, what do you need that for? Though the comments came after the New York Times and others reported that Jackson had been accused of overseeing a hostile work environment as White House physician, drinking on the job, and allowing the overprescription of drugs. Meanwhile, documents obtained by uh, news media show that former President Obama sent years of positive report about Jackson's work as White House physician. And billions of dollars in donor contributions, including $3 billion from the U.S. to a trust fund created for the reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan, may in fact be lost because of mishandling by the World Bank. That's according to a new Watchdog report. They claim the most recent audit report from the Special Inspector General of Afghanistan Reconstruction obtained uh, by news media looks at the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund, an international fund created in 2002 and maintained by the World Bank, finds that the uh, fund has experienced continued limitations and that a lack of transparency in the monitoring and accounting has put billions of dollars at risk, of vanishing despite steps taken in 2011 to improve the account system in place. Wow. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with uh, John Malcolm. He's the vice president for the Institute of Constitutional Government. He's the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. The Supreme Court earlier today heard oral arguments uh, on the Trump administration travel ban in its third iteration. We're going to find out what uh, the hearing might tell us about how they're likely to rule, and that ruling will uh, not uh, come uh, until probably this summer, late June, and is uh, po- quite possibly the last decision we'll hear uh, in this session that's uh, coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, during arguments at the Supreme Court today, the last uh, oral arguments they'll hear in this uh, session, the justices, according to Nina Totenberg, seemed by a narrow margin to be leaning toward upholding the third iteration of the Trump travel ban. Well, that was the issue that they heard earlier today. Well, here to talk with us about what happened and what the issues are is John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be
3: with you.
1: Well, this was a hearing that the Supreme Court justices agreed to take on the third iteration of the president's travel ban. What can you tell us about what uh, what happened today?
2: Well, there was a lot of interest uh, in the case. There were obviously a lot of protesters outside. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was in the courtroom, as were Senators Mazie Hirono and Orrin Hatch and and Congressman Bob Goodlatte. So there was obviously a lot of interest. Uh, I, I think Nina Totenberg's prognostication is probably correct. You had two very skilled advocates there on behalf of Hawaii and the challengers to the Trump administration, you had Neil Kotschow who's the former acting Solicitor General and then Noel Francisco, the current Solicitor General, was arguing on behalf of the administration. So, you know, Neil Kotschow's argument is really twofold. One, he says that uh, while the president has fairly broad discretion under the Immigration and Nationality Act, it is not completely unfettered uh, and that in taking this action, he exceeded his authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act. And then a second argument he has made uh, is that this third iteration of the travel ban like the first two, according to Katyal, violates the constitution in that it was not really motivated by national security concerns but was rather uh, based on religious animus specifically against Muslims. Uh, Noel Francisco had you know rebuttals to all of this. Uh, he says that Congress has given the President all of the authority that he needs uh, to act under a particular provision that allows him to exclude uh, any alien or any class of aliens if he believes that not doing so would be detrimental to the national interests of the United States. He said that he doesn't think that this supplants the rest of the Immigration and Nationality Act, as Katcha argues, but rather it supplements. Uh, the other provisions of the of the INA, specifically to deal with situations like this one, where intelligence uh, uh, comes in, that Congress may not have foreseen about uh, you know an, an imminent or potentially disastrous national security threat. With respect to you know the arguments uh, based on religious animus that this is somehow a Muslim ban, uh, you know perhaps the, the the catchiest line of the day was that it 's not a Muslim ban, but if it was, it was the most ineffective one uh, Muslim ban that anyone could think of because it only covers seven uh, countries, five of them are majority Muslim countries, three majority Muslim countries that had previously been on the list uh, had been dropped chad, uh, Sudan, and uh, Iraq, uh, and that this only covered eight percent of the world 's uh, the world's Muslims, uh, and that there are legitimate national security threats and that they were laid out with sufficient, uh, insufficient detail, uh, along with the process used to derive that list uh, in the president's proclamation.
1: Now, if the president hadn't made statements about uh, banning Muslims during the campaign and the question of whether or not that those statements are relevant, would this have been an issue at all from your perspective?
2: Well, I don't think so in that the the statutory arguments might still have remained about whether he had exceeded his authority, uh, but the constitutional argument would have gone away. In fact, Neil Kotchow was asked a question by Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, He said, look, suppose the president were to stand up and say, you know all those previous statements that I made, Uh, that some of you perceived as being anti-Muslim. I disavow all of them. What if he did that and then the next day reissued precisely the same proclamation? Would you be able to assert your constitutional arguments? And Kotschall said no. No, I wouldn't. Uh, he also acknowledged that there's something special, perhaps about statements made during the heat of a campaign battle. Uh, but he said, look, if it were just that, we, you might be able to ignore those. But that essentially after his inauguration, the president had, quote unquote, rekindled those same sentiments with other statements that he had made and other tweets that he had sent.
1: Now, the oral arguments were heard today. This is the last case that they're hearing during this session. Uh, the right. d- justices are under a tremendous amount of pressure, and I know one of them is going for Surgery sometime perhaps later this week. And this was the first time since the same sex marriage argument that the court allowed uh, same day distribution of the sessions audio. What are your thoughts about um, the significance of what they are about to do and what kind of decision we might anticipate?
2: Well, that is certainly significant. It's significant from a number of perspectives, not only in terms of the national security implications uh, for our country, but this is a real separation of powers mm-hmm. case. Uh, not only separation between what Congress can do and the executive can do, but also about what the two political branches can do vis-a-vis the judicial branch and whether the judicial branch in a matter of national security has the ability to, if you will, peek behind the curtain and second-guess the decisions made by the political branches. So the implications, both immediate and long-term, are rather large. Uh, you know, Clearly, the court is going to be divided. This is not going to be a unanimous decision, uh, so I would predict uh since they have allowed the vast majority of the president's ban to go into effect, they're not they don't have to issue an opinion immediately. And indeed, I predict that this will be one of the last decisions uh, that they issue before they hightail it out of town at the end of June.
1: Now, the Supreme Court has previously on many occasions said that the executive need only and I'm quoting, uh, come up with a facially legitimate bona fide reason to keep some people out of our country. Uh, Is that a sufficient precedent to predict the outcome in this case? Well, it's hard to say. So Justice
2: Kagan asked Noel Francisco uh, a rather strange hypothetical Mm to test just how far that would go. He asked General Francisco, he said, look, what if we had a future out-of-the-box president who was a vehement anti-Semite, who issued lots and lots of derogatory statements towards Jews, uh, while he, During the campaign and after he was president, suppose he went to his cabin uh, his cabinet and said, "I want you to issue a proclamation that uh, denies the admission of anybody coming from Israel. Could a court look behind that uh, and General Francisco conceded yes they probably could he said there were a number of safeguards that were in place one of them would be uh, that the other cabinet officials will all have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution And if they receive such a blatantly unconstitutional directive that they would be you know what they should do is either ignore it or resign uh, but that if there was absolutely no evidence to suggest that Israel one of our closest allies posed this kind of a threat uh, that then such a justification you know premised on national security would not be facially legitimate and that a court could look behind that. And then, of course, he went back to say that that was a far cry from the present situation where you had a multi-departmental review and a painstaking process uh, to try to identify countries who provide what was referred to as minimum baseline of information that we need to decide who can safely be admitted to our shores, uh, and so that that hypothetical, uh, while uh, a a challenging one, was not uh, the situation that we face now.
1: There was a significant number of national security experts. There were, I understand, more than 55 former CIA and deputy CIA directors, counterterrorism chiefs, top diplomats with long records in the Middle East, secretaries of state, even the Republican chairman of the 9-11 Commission, who all came out against the president's travel ban. How significant is that and their amicus briefs and uh, other uh, contributing um, information and opinion on this uh, pending decision?
2: Well, so that's that's an interesting point. Uh, Some of what they raised were statutory arguments. They thought the president's reading of his statutory authority was overbroad and would become the exception that swallows the rule in terms of other limitations that Congress had placed in the Immigration and Nationality Act. A major uh, reason behind their breach was they said, look, this is really kind of counterproductive uh, in that it really doesn't help us stop terrorists. There's a lot of individual vetting. Uh, that goes on, and it ends up becoming, if you will, a recruitment tool uh, for ISIS and Al Qaeda. That did not really come up. Those sorts of implications did not come up. I mean, I you know I suppose uh, that there may be some valence uh, to that argument, but there's a trade-off. That is involved. I mean, as, as we have with sanctuary cities, you will get some people that say, "Well, if we have sanctuary, if we don't have sanctuary cities, people who are victimized, uh, who are illegal immigrants, won't come out of the shadows and talk to the police." And that may be so. But if you have a sanctuary city policy, then you're going to have a lot of very, very dangerous people released and walking on the streets of our cities in the United States. Same thing here. Uh, so on the one side, you can say that to the extent to which this proclamation is perceived as an anti-Muslim ban, it serves as a requ- recruiting tool for terrorists who mean us harm. On the other hand, if we don't put in uh, rigorous, intense or extreme vetting, to use the president's phrase, we run the risk of admitting very dangerous people who were intent on mayhem onto our shores, as has happened in a lot of European countries.
1: Well, again, we can expect to hear from the Supreme Court sometime this summer, probably the latter part of June. And one can only hope it's a clear decision that maintains the separation of powers. John Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you, Georgie.
1: Appreciate it very much. Again, John Malcolm is vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to take a break in just a moment. We'll return and talk a little bit about a new um, study, and uh, we'll bring you up to date on that. We'll also talk with Patrina Mosley. She's the Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy at the Family Research Council. There's a new BARNA study that offers statistics on Americans' redefinition of family morality, and we'll talk with Matt Staver, founder and chairman of Liberty Council, on the California bill that's so broad it could ban books like the Bible, or at least sections of it. All of that coming up later in today's program. You're listening to... To the georgine rice show
0: you 're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine kpdq
1: we 're back thirty three minutes after four o 'clock you 're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up next segment we 'll talk with patrina mosley she 's the director of life culture and women 's advocacy at the family research council we 'll talk about a new Barna set of stats on America's redefinition of family morality. It's rather telling and sobering all at the same time. Well, Gary Kleck, a criminologist now retired from Florida State University, he was likely astonished to learn that his controversial study, the National Self-Defense Survey, was as accurate as he'd reported. He and the FSU fellow professor Mark Gertz Uh, They concluded, based on their carefully crafted surveys conducted in 1993, that there were more than 2.2 million defensive gun uses. They're referred to as DGU, defensive gun uses, each year in the United States. Well, the results were presented in 1994, published in 1995, and they've been incessantly attacked by the anti-gun movement ever since. Well, his conclusions didn't fit the narrative that guns are used in crimes far more than self-defense, and therefore private ownership must be abolished. Well, Kleck just learned that almost immediately after the publication of his study, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a federal agency that receives more than $11 billion of taxpayer money every year, conducted its own study on the matter. It conducted uh, three separate studies, in fact, and each of them came to the same conclusion as Kleck and Gertz. Indeed, about 2.5 million Americans use guns to defend themselves or their families every year. But the CDC studies were never published. It would have infuriated the powers that be in the administration of the time. That would have been Clinton. And so the results were simply buried. Well, after reviewing the newly discovered recovered studies, Kleck, in his best professional manner, wrote, and I quote The final adjusted prevalence of 1.24 percent, the population experiencing these. Um, guns used for defense in the past 12 months, therefore implies that in an average year during 1986 to 98, 2.46 million U.S. adults used a gun for self-defense. Now, this estimate, based on an enormous sample of 12,870 cases unweighted, in a nationally representative sample, strongly confirms the 2.5 million past 12 months estimate obtained by me and Mark Gertz in 1995. CDC's results then imply that guns were used defensively by victims... of About 3.6 times as often as they were used offensively by criminals. Now, whether or not you believe that um, uh, guns should be banned, it seems that there ought to be a level playing field when it comes to releasing information that would inform us in making decisions about how we want to move forward as a country. Uh, Cleck added that CDC never reported the results of those surveys, does not report on their website any estimates of DGUs, the defensive uh, gun use, frequency, and does not even acknowledge that they ever asked about the topic in any of their surveys. In other words, the CDC got caught hiding information damaging to the narrative then prevalent during the Clinton administration, but they didn't bury it deeply enough. Dean Weingarten recently retired from the Department of Defense after a 30-year career in Army research, development, testing, and evaluation. He knew exactly what the CDC was up to, calling the timing and size of the surveys done by the CDC fascinating. They were done immediately after Kleck and Gertz published their paper. And he notes that Gary Kleck, as a scientist, a Democrat, and a proponent of a number of gun control measures is careful not to cast aspersions on the CDC. He does not accuse anyone of malfeasance. He notes the surveys were done during the Clinton administration, and these findings would have worked against the gun control agenda of the administration. Someone at the CDC made the decision not to publish these results. Well, does any of this matter, I suppose, is the question. It's common knowledge that operatives supportive of gun control narrative have infiltrated various government agencies. These studies took place more than 20 years ago. There's been a lot of water under the bridge. Since then, private ownership of guns has skyrocketed, while overall gun violence has fallen by half. National reciprocity has already passed one branch of Congress. Americans own more weaponry than any other country on earth. It matters because, first, it removes one more talking point used to defend an intention to remove firearms from every law-abiding gun owner in the country. Second, it confirms that government agencies cannot be trusted without verification. Third, it is one more argument in the arsenal of those promoting private gun ownership to those who haven't yet made up their minds. Well, that means that the real battlefield isn't between the CLEC study and the CDC's failure to admit the truth. Anti-gunners aren't likely to change sides merely because of deceit committed by one of their own 25 years ago. The real battle is in the hearts and minds of Americans who will one day have to take a stand on the issue one way or the other. And it would be better to take a stand having been informed rather than uninformed or misinformed. Well, climate researchers have spent decades trying to pin down the planet's equilibrium. Climate sensitivity, also known as the initial by the initials rather ECS, that figures represents how much it would uh, ultimately increase global average temperatures if the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere doubles above the pre-industrial levels. Well, figures out of the uh, uh, the ECS has huge implications for policy. If future warnings is that low end um, at the low end rather humanity has more time to adapt and to shift energy production away from the fossil fuels that are loading up the atmosphere with extra carbon dioxide. If at the high end efforts to adapt and shift energy production to low carbon um, sources would need to be sped up, Well, the current assessments of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, states that the ECS is likely to be in the range of 1.5 degrees centigrade to 4.5 degrees centigrade, extremely unlikely to be less than 1 degree centigrade, and very unlikely to be greater than 6 degrees centigrade. But a new study in the Journal of Climate suggests that the IPCC's estimates are much too high in calculating their, their rival figures, authors Nicholas Lewis and Judith Curry, uh, take into account historical atmospheric and ocean uh, temperature trends since the mid 19th century. Their estimates also draw on new findings since the ni- since 1990 of how atmospheric ozone and aerosols are likely to affect global temperature trends. They also address other researchers' concerns about the earlier ECS studies that are they published in 2015. Our results imply that for any future emissions scenario, future warming is likely to be substantially lower than the central computer model simulated. Level projected by the IPCC and highly unlikely to exceed that level, Lewis says in a press release from the Global Warming Policy Forum. How much lower? Their medium ECS estimates that 1.66 degrees Celsius, that's 5 to 95% uncertainty range. Uh, is derived using globally complete temperature data. The comparable estimate for the 31 current generation computer climate simulation models cited by the IPCC is 3.1 degrees centigrade. In other words, the models are running almost two times hotter than the analysis of historical data suggests that future temperatures will be. In addition, the high-end estimate of the Lewis and Curry uh, uncertainty range is 1.8% centigrade below the IPCC's uh, high-end estimate. The Lewis and Curry's estimate Estimates are in line with the similarly low estimates reported by climatologist Thornton Morrison and the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology meteorology and Robert Pincus at the University of Colorado in the July 2017 issue of Nature Climate Change. Using historical temperature data, data rather, those two researchers calculate an ECS of 1.5 percent centigrade, and that's 0.9 to 3.6 degrees centigrade, fifth to 95 percentile, rather. If these two studies turn out to be right, that will be good news for humanity. Uh, Again, uh, talking about ECS, which is Equilibrium climate sensitivity. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, President Trump gave Dr. Ronnie Jackson a clean bill of health in March to run the Department of Veterans Affairs. A Navy Rear Admiral, Jackson is the president's personal physician who rose to prominence after he addressed the press from the White House. Uh, in January to discuss President Trump's health. And while Jackson said the president needs to lose some weight, he said the physical exam he conducted showed overall that President Trump was in good physical and mental health. But Jackson has run into some issues with his Senate confirmation hearing. The hearing has been delayed after questions have arisen about his conduct and ability to manage the agency. Now, he's been confirmed on several occasions, has been highly complimented by President Obama. And it's interesting the timing, many are suggesting, of these objections. Now, according to The New York Times, Jackson has been accused of in the past rather of overseeing a hostile work environment as White House physician, including allegations of drinking on the job and allowing the overprescription of drugs, which, by the way, whenever he administers drugs, there have to be careful records kept of to whom those drugs were given and how much. Well, the president fired Secretary David Shulkin in March of uh, March of this year and. Um, Mark, uh, rather, Robert Wilkie is serving as interim secretary until Jackson is confirmed. From Texas, Jackson, 50, graduated from Texas A&M University in 1991 with a degree in marine biology, according to his Navy biography. He graduated from the University of Texas Medical Branch with his medical degree in 1995. That same year, he joined the Portsmouth Naval Medical Center, located just outside Chesapeake, Virginia, which kicked off his active duty military career. It was there that he finished his, an internship in transitional medicine. Later, he would return to the Naval Center to complete his residency in emergency medicine. Medicine, graduating at the top of his class in two thousand and four, Jackson was deployed to Iraq after he joined the Second Marines in two thousand and five, according to his Navy biography. He served as an emergency medicare a uh, rather medicine physician in charge of uh, resuscitative medicine for a forward deployed surgical shock trauma platoon. And while still in Iraq, he was tapped as a White House physician in 2006. He was, has overseen the physicians for Camp David presidential retreats, led the White House medical unit, directed the executive health care for the cabinet and senior staff members, according to his biography. It was former President Barack Obama who selected Jackson to fill the position of physician to the president, and he documented his compliments on many occasions with regard to that service. Uh, these allegations now have postponed his uh, confirmation, which would not certainly be the first time he was confirmed to serve in this capacity. We'll continue to follow that story. Meanwhile, in the U.K., again, they're forcing parents to let another baby die, and they won't even allow the family to take him out of the country for help, reminding many of the horrible Charlie Guard situation from less than a year ago. From Ed Morrissey, one might understand if a state-controlled health care system decided that further treatment would take valuable resources from patients who would benefit more. But that's not what's happening with Alfie, this little child. In this case, as with Charlie Gard, the government has not only decided to stop providing any medical assistance to Alfie, but to actively prevent his parents from seeking care elsewhere. And all this without a firm diagnosis and with the curious description of semi-vegetative state, which appears to indicate brain activity is still taking place. Uh, the judge sh- said his ruling represents the final chapter in the life of this extraordinary little boy. Hmm. Well, writing for the Federalist, uh, Franklin Graham says this. I cannot imagine a more heart wrenching situation for a mom and dad to be in Liverpool parents, Tom and Evans, rather Tom Evans and Katie James need our prayers. Their son, Alfie Evans, had his life support withdrawn yesterday and now they've been granted an emergency hearing. Pray for little Alfie and pray for these parents as they fight in this battle. And this um, from another story, the judge in the controversial legal battle over the life and death of Alfie Evans has told the little boy's parents that they are not able to take him home for now. Essentially, Justice uh, Hayden considers Alfie's parents a flight risk and worries that they'll leave the country with a 23 month old little boy in tow to try to save his life, not to abuse him, but to try to save his life. Pray for the Evans. Up next, we'll talk with Patrina Mosley, director of life, culture, and women's advocacy at the Family Research Council.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon, and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, pollster George Barna has some fresh new polling regarding what American adults deem. Morally acceptable. Huh. Well, some of the disheartening findings were published by Family Research Council. And Petrina Mosley, who's the Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy, joins us to talk about these stats and what they tell us about who we are as a nation, and in particular, who we are as the church. Thank you so much for joining us, Petrina.
3: Thank you for having me, Georgina. Happy to be here. Well,
1: let's talk about the George Barna poll. What was it designed to do? And, and uh, tell us a little bit about generally what, uh, what, it, uh, what it does do. Well,
3: this poll was to measure how Americans are feeling about certain topics that we would consider, as a general public, moral issues. And they did a random sample of 1,000 adults in the country and found some interesting uh, results. So the biggest takeaway is that some of the issues that we've traditionally held as moral now more and more Americans are seeing no moral concept to them. Morality is irrelevant and it's all about personal preference. So they measured eight different outcomes, but there were five that were the biggest takeaway. And one was using pills medical devices for birth control. 50, uh, 86% of Americans found that acceptable. Getting a divorce, 77% found that acceptable. Sexual intercourse between unmarried male and females. Uh, Adults, 71% acceptable. Having a baby outside of marriage, 59% said that was acceptable. And basically looking at pornography or sexually explicit uh, pictures, acceptable to 58%. So this is something that shouldn't surprise us as much as we see the culture changing to be less accepting of absolutes, but what was surprising, and I guess a little bit concerning, is what these stats meant for the church. So when they pulled the church and how born again adults, people who believe that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, He's the only way, they they found. I'm going to just point out three out of those five that were the most interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that 54% of those who claim to be born again said that it was morally acceptable to have a baby outside of marriage. Uh, 51% that is morally acceptable. sexual relations to happen between unmarried adults and that four out of ten born-again adults believe that and pornography was acceptable that was 38 percent now a caveat to that when they just poll the Millennials 66 percent of Millennials agree that it's morally acceptable to watch or view pornography And these are values that we see are explicitly talked about in the scriptures. And so it makes you think where's the biblical worldview?
1: Well, it does raise some questions about what's being taught in church and whether or not we accept. A biblical view of morality as opposed to what the culture is peddling. It also tells us something about whether or not the church is influencing the culture or the culture is having a significant impact um, on the church. Now, you're right that some of this isn't altogether surprising. I think the numbers were surprising, certainly in the secular categories in each of the five that you mentioned. But it's certainly disheartening that among churchgoers, people who um, purportedly take their faith seriously, that uh, apparently, morality, as taught in scripture, has no impact on their practice or their their preference uh, in terms mm-hmm. of of conduct did the mm-hmm. uh, did the, the poll draw any conclusions uh, from these these numbers and these findings? No, they didn't draw
3: any conclusions. Uh, They just laid out the numbers for us to kind of just see and and get a glimpse of what, you know, what is taking place in the minds of the American people and in the minds of those who claim to be born again. But I think the, the most logical conclusion is exactly what you pointed out is, is the general culture and the public having more of an impact on the church than vice versa. And, you know, I personally agree to the fact that we have to start with our own selves first mm-hmm. before we can reach other people. And it's basically taking the gospel that we believe in and making an impact in the real world. And that gospel, we have to believe it for ourselves first and believe in the Matthew, in the Matthew, um, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus said, go and make disciples. That means you're going out and you're impacting the world with his teachings with his beliefs with his ways with his values and are we really seeing that it seems like we're seeing more of a private faith than a public faith but when we make our faith more public it has to make an impact um so this has just been really interesting i think the church should look at this and, and just maybe start thinking about how are they discipling people in a biblical worldview that's not enough to just know the word But how are we as
1: Christians are going to put it into practice in our everyday lives, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday? Yeah, I I think your emphasis on the word discipleship. My first question is whether or not we are disciples. Uh, We might be believers, but are we disciples who are following Jesus? And then are we making disciples? And I think those are two very sobering questions. And it it would appear, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to overgeneralize, but it certainly does raise some important questions about how well we're doing personally and how well we're doing um, reaching out into the the culture as well in terms of training people. What does the Bible say about this subject or that subject? Uh, And so, uh, again, it just it's very sobering and it it outlines for us the challenge moving forward. Right, it, it's basically saying, how do we get people from point A to point B to living and thinking
3: like Jesus? To make, to having them realize that their gospel is supposed to make a practical impact, not just on themselves but on the world. We're post, we're called to be salt and light. And a lot of times we'll see churches, especially today, and we're seeing that that I don't go say I don't want to touch these issues, social issues, with a ten foot pole. And there's some fear there in the pulpit that they're going to lose members, that they're going to lose uh, funds and donations and tithes because they don't want to separate anyone. But we have to stand on what the truth of God's word is because the truth of God's word has natural benefits for the society as a whole. Uh, you look at the American Enterprise Institute who put out a recent poll as well that when you finish school, you get a job, you get married, then have kids. in that order, in that sequence of success, Millennials are cutting people who are doing that. They're cutting their poverty by 90%. And there's natural blessings of doing things God's way that impacts the culture. So I think that's something that we need to start thinking about. Hey, you know what? Maybe these social issues are controversial, But Second Timothy tells us, Second Timothy three sixteen tells us that the Word of God is useful for not only our own personal godliness, but for life and it's useful for correction and for rebuke and for encouragement that the Word of God has answers to the issues that we're looking at Monday through Saturday. And most people in the peers, if they're getting the answer that they need for themselves, spiritually, like, okay, you know, how do I feel about this issue? Can God help me out in this particular personal situation? But the Word of God has answers for issues of abortion, for issues of uh, divorce, for issues of homosexuality, for, um, for issues of pornography and purity. It's okay for us as a church to talk about these things mm-hmm. when there's clear principles. From scriptures that relate to that, and we have to be able to to talk about those things to our audience clearly yeah. and distinctively
1: well i think you're right it 's not only okay, but it seems to me essential that these issues are being addressed because young people in particular uh, they are being um, addressed in the secular forum, and the conclusions that are being Absolutely. drawn certainly are not consistent with what the Bible teaches, so we can no longer shrink back from these subjects, uh, believing that you know it'll just somehow. Uh, they'll come to the right conclusions, but these are issues that they are facing and they're looking for answers. And it seems that right. the church is the place we want them to go to find them. Well, I appreciate so much. your drawing our attention to this survey. And again, it is very sobering uh, and challenging for us moving forward. Uh, if we want to be salt and light in this culture in the time that God has, uh, has given us. Mm-hmm. Thank you Absolutely. so much, patrina Appreciate it Thank very you. much. Uh-huh. Again, Petrina Mosley, she's the Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy at the Family Research Council. Certainly, there is a fundamental transformation in American society, and uh, this survey shows that a large majority of the nation's adults have radically redefined moral behavior as it relates to family matters, and it's, um, it appears that they're not finished making those changes moving forward. So I appreciate the uh, the information. Uh, up next, we're going to talk with uh, Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council. There's a bill in California, AB um, 2943, and it's written so broadly that it will ban uh, books, printed materials, and ads providing information, offering help with uh, those with unwanted same-sex attraction and j- confusion. Certain scriptures, for example, uh, will be banned. And w- lest one thing. Well, it's just inadvertent. There are statements made on the floor of the uh, California Assembly and elsewhere specifically targeting um, ministers of the gospel and scripture. So we'll talk with Matt Staver about that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Now, many of us have been watching the bill in California, AB 2943, that is so broadly written that it would ban books and printed materials and ads that provide information offering help for those with unwanted same-sex attraction or gender confusion, even if they themselves wanted it. Well, as we have looked on from this side of the border, we may not fully appreciate the potential impact that this law would have on free speech, on viewpoint expression on not only in the state of California, but beyond. Here to talk with us about that is Matt Staver. He's founder and chairman of Liberty Council. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank
4: you. My pleasure to be with you.
1: Well, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with AB 2943, which is a California bill that uh, threatens to become law there. Explain what it is, what it does, and its status.
4: Yeah, it passed uh, the House by an overwhelming margin, 50 to 18, and now it's on the way to the Senate, and it's likely to pass the Senate probably by the end of May. It's going through the committee hearings and then maybe be signed into law at the end of May, early June. It's a bill that's so broad that it bans books, print materials, and advertisements that provide information that a person facing unwanted same-sex attractions or gender identity confusion can change. It declares specifically that advertising, offering to engage in, or engaging in sexual orientation change efforts with an individual is fraudulent business practice. And, in fact, one of the members of the California, California Assembly Uh, stated specifically when he was speaking about this, says that the First Amendment does not prohibit banning fraudulent conduct. And then he says the faith community, like anyone else, needs to evolve with the times. I mean, this is shocking. Another person who's commenting about this, he actually spoke at the Google headquarters regarding this law. He's an activist, and he said that he wants to try to figure out a way to stop pastors and churches from addressing these issues of change and offering counsel to help people to change. He says, I'm quoting him, I may not be able to find every little camp, every pastor, but I can make it something that is culturally unacceptable. He said, yes, it's directly affecting mental health professionals, but by proxy, it's affecting everyone else. It is the broadest bill because for the first time ever, it would ban adults. From receiving the counsel of his or her choice regarding unwanted same-sex attractions, behavior, or identity, and it's the first time ever that it would extend this prohibition to the consumer fraud division of the law and ban printed material. Uh, this is so far bre- uh, so far-reaching; uh, it is unbelievable that it would not only ban adults from receiving the counsel they want but also would ban books, including the Bible.
1: It really is uh, breathtaking, and it would seem to me that this isn't inadvertent that somehow uh, the church or the Bible, for example, would be caught in this net, but that it is at least to some degree intentional that that kind of communication, what the scriptures have to say on the subject, uh, is deliberately, or what ministers of the gospel or ministries that deal with those uh, struggling with same-sex attraction or gender identity, they have deliberately been included.
4: Oh, they have deliberately been included. You know, they started off with banning this kind of counsel to minors, and then the next step, of course, is banning it that they're now at to adults, but then beyond that, they're banning even any kind of thing in writing and including the Bible. The Bible, for example, in many cases addresses the issue of homosexuality, but in 1 Corinthians 6-9, you can't get any more clear Mm -hmm. about the issue of change. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 speaks specifically about homosexuality. It's listed in a group of other sins. And then verse 11 says, "And such were some of you. Some of you used to engage in homosexual practices or have same-sex attractions. But because you were washed and cleansed through the power and your relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been changed." Preaching on that message Quoting these particular scriptures in a brochure, on a billboard, in some kind of online website, all of that would be considered fraudulent business practices and would be banned under this proposed law. That likely, or this proposed bill, that likely will become law later this uh, this year. That's why we are already uh, lining up uh, plaintiffs and preparing the, the lawsuit to file as soon as this particular bill is signed by Governor Brown.
1: And it will be signed by Governor Brown. We know that to be the case.
4: Right. Yeah, it will be signed. I mean, he, he's certainly one of the cheerleaders on the sideline that would welcome this kind of law.
1: Mm. Now, this is a, a classic case of viewpoint discrimination. It runs uh, head on uh, with the First Amendment. Uh, if, in fact, this is go- it has to be challenged and uh, brought before the Supreme Court, perhaps first in California, then the U.S. Supreme Court, How likely is it that you would succeed in in knocking this thing down?
4: Well, you know, we'd have to go through the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the most uh, liberal and most reversed Mm -hmm. Circuit Court of Appeals in the entire country. Uh, So we have to get through that process there first and then go all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. But I'm confident that when at some point in time the Supreme Court reviews this or a similar case... I believe we'll have uh, enough uh, people on the Supreme Court that see that will clearly see that this is an outrageous violation of the First Amendment, just like what California recently did. They passed this law that requires crisis pregnancy centers to post these egregious mm-hmm. 29-word, 48-point flaunt disclaimers, or I should say referrals to abortion. Yes. Uh, That didn't receive very good reception at the U.S. Supreme Court. I think they'll strike that down. I think whenever a case like this, or particularly this particular law, gets before the Supreme Court, I think it'll be struck down. But before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah,
1: yeah. Now, for those, uh, assuming AB 2943 becomes the law in the state of California, for those who choose to declare what the Scriptures have to say on the subject and either post or speak the words of Scripture uh, with regard to same-sex attraction or gender, Confusion is this? Is there a criminal penalty? And, and is it fair to say this is essentially criminalizing a viewpoint and communication?
4: Well, certainly it starts off with oh, fines, and then the government can uh, ramp that up to even higher uh, fines. And and I think it can e- easily go into a criminal as well. Just like anything else, when you have a fraud when you put something in the consumer fraud provision, you have civil fines and you have criminal penalties against that as well. And that's what this would be doing, putting it in the and the fraudulent business practices uh, and the state will come down on that very very hard so uh, you know every person is going to be targeted not just counselors uh, but also people who advertise pastors who promote people who give testimonies and encourage people to seek counsel and uh, life-changing words like they've received all those people will be targeted uh, as part of this uh, crim- or as part of this fraudulent scheme that they're setting up
1: for those of us who are not in the state of California, but are very concerned about the outcome of the deliberations in the Senate and ultimately on the desk of the governor there. Is there anything we can do short of praying for an outcome different from the one that everyone expects will will be the case to have an impact on this uh, this bill?
4: Well, certainly pray, and if you know people in California, contact your uh, senators right now and encourage them to vote against this. Uh, You can also visit our website, lc.org, to stay involved uh, with what's going on. You can support our ministry. We're working right now on uh, preparing this lawsuit. But don't think that this is just California. It's not going to affect you. You know, the ban on minors receiving this kind of counsel started in California, went all the way over to New Jersey and got passed. It's been passed in some other uh, states. Now some cities are passing this very ordinance. So this, if it passes in California, is not going to stay in California. It's going to move to other parts of the country. So this is why we need to really... Be concerned, be in prayer, and be uh, active.
1: And again, lc.org is a great place to stay uh, up to date on what's happening. Well, Matt Staver, I am so grateful for your time here today, but more importantly that you are prepared to address this uh, if it becomes the law in California, and I think it's fair to say when this becomes the law in California, and hopefully uh, judicial minds will, will uh, overturn this ultimately, and we won't have to face battles in other places.
4: Thank you. Well, I... Uh, you know continue to uh, monitor lc.org we're putting information up uh, regularly about this bill you can follow it there at the
1: website lc.org. Uh, thank you so much. Thank again you. Uh, Matt Staber is the founder and chairman of Liberty Council and again I appreciate that they have been uh, working through this process that's uh, gone on for quite some time now but is drawing Uh, to what could be a close as early as May with a floor vote in the uh, Senate in the California Assembly. And uh, the governor is expected to sign this uh, this bill into law if, in fact, it successfully passes. And as he pointed out, if you have friends or family in the state of California, make sure they know about it uh, and that they are communicating with lawmakers there uh, about this very crucial vote. And there's a great deal at stake. Um, If it passes in California, and as he pointed out, what happens in California rarely stays in California. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll hear from John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. The Supreme Court heard arguments on the president's uh, travel ban and whether or not he has the executive authority to um, uphold one or to uh, impose one. We'll find out what they had to say. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, during arguments at the Supreme Court today, the last uh, oral arguments they'll hear in this uh, session, the justices, according to Nina Totenberg, seemed by a narrow margin to be leaning toward upholding the third iteration of the Trump travel ban. Well, that was the issue that they heard earlier today. Well, here to talk with us about what happened and what the issues are is John Malcolm. He's vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you.
1: Well, this was a hearing that the Supreme Court justices agreed to take on the third iteration of the president's travel ban. What can you tell us about what uh, what happened today?
2: Well, there was a lot of interest uh, in the case. There were obviously a lot of protesters outside. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was in the courtroom, as were Senators Maisie Hirono and Orrin Hatch and, and Congressman Bob Goodlatte. So there was obviously a lot of interest. Uh, I, I think Nina Totenberg's Prognostication is probably correct. You had two very skilled advocates there on behalf of Hawaii and the challengers to the Trump administration. You had Neil Kachal, who's the former acting Solicitor General, and then Noel Francisco, the current Solicitor General, was arguing on behalf of the administration. So, you know, Neil Kachal's argument is really twofold. One, He says that uh, while the president has fairly broad discretion under the Immigration and Nationality Act, it is not completely unfettered uh, and that in taking this action, he exceeded his authority under the Immigration and Nationality Act. And then a second argument he has made uh, is that this third iteration of the travel ban like the first two, according to Katyal, uh, violates the constitution in that it was not really motivated by national security concerns but was rather uh, based on religious animus specifically against Muslims. Uh, Noel Francisco had rebuttals to all of this. Uh, He says that Congress has given the president all of the authority that he needs uh, to act under a particular provision that allows him to exclude uh, any alien or any class of aliens if he believes that not doing so would be detrimental to the national interests of the United States. He said that he doesn't think that this supplants the rest of the Immigration and Nationality Act, as Kotschall argues, but rather it supplements uh, the other provisions of the, of the INA, specifically to deal with situations like this one, where intelligence uh, uh, comes in that Congress may not have foreseen about uh, you know an, an imminent or potentially disastrous national security threat, with respect to you know the arguments uh, based on religious animus that this is somehow a Muslim ban. Uh, You know, perhaps the the catchiest line of the day was that it's not a Muslim ban, but if it was, it was the most ineffective one uh, Muslim ban that anyone could think of because it only covers seven uh, countries. Five of them are majority Muslim countries. Three majority Muslim countries that had previously been on the list uh, had been dropped, Chad, uh, Sudan, and uh, Iraq, uh, and that this only covered 8% of the world's Uh, The world's Muslims uh, and that there are legitimate national security threats and that they were laid out with sufficient, uh, insufficient detail, uh, along with the process used to derive that list uh, in the president's proclamation.
1: If the president hadn't made statements about uh, banning Muslims during the campaign and the question of whether or not that those statements are relevant, would this have been an issue at all from your perspective?
0: Well, I
2: don't think so in that the cha- well, but the statutory arguments might still have remained about whether he had exceeded his authority, uh, but the constitutional argument would have gone away. In fact, Neil Kotchow was asked a question by Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, he said, look, suppose the president were to stand up and say, you know, all those previous statements that I made uh, that some of you perceived as an- being anti-Muslim, I disavow all of them. What if he did that and then the next day reissued precisely the same proclamation would he be able to assert a constitutional argument? And I said, no. No, I wouldn't. Uh, he also acknowledged that there's something special, perhaps about statements made during the heat of a campaign battle. Uh, but he said, look, if it were just that, we, you might be able to ignore those. But that essentially after his inauguration, the president had, quote unquote, rekindled those same sentiments with other statements that he had made and other tweets that he had sent.
1: Now, the oral arguments were heard today. This is the last case that they're hearing during this session. Uh, the right. d- justices are under a tremendous amount of pressure, and I know one of them is going for Surgery sometime perhaps later this week. And this was the first time since the same sex marriage argument that the court allowed uh, same day distribution of the sessions audio. What are your thoughts about um, the significance of what they are about to do and what kind of decision we might anticipate?
2: Well, that is certainly significant. It's significant from a number of perspectives, not only in terms of the national security implications uh, for our country, but this is a real separation of powers mm-hmm. case. Uh, not only separation between what Congress can do and the executive can do, but also about what the two political branches can do vis-a-vis the judicial branch and whether the judicial branch in the matter of national security has the ability to, if you will, peek behind the curtain and second-guess the decisions made by the political branches. So the implications, both immediate and long-term, are rather large. Uh, you know, Clearly, the court is going to be divided. This is not going to be a unanimous decision, uh, so I would predict... Uh, Since they have allowed the vast majority of the president's ban to go into effect, they're not they don't have to issue an opinion immediately. And indeed, I predict that this will be one of the last decisions uh, that they issue before they hightail it out of town at the end of June.
1: Now, the Supreme Court has previously on many occasions said that the executive need only, and I'm quoting, uh, come up with a facially legitimate bona fide reason to keep some people out of our country. Uh, Is that a sufficient precedent to predict the outcome in this case?
2: Well, it's hard to say. So Justice Kagan asked Noel Francisco uh, a rather strange hypothetical Mm -hmm. to test just how far that would go. He asked General Francisco, he said, look, what if we had a future out-of-the-box president who was a vehement anti-Semite who issued lots and lots of derogatory statements towards Jews uh, while he, during the campaign and after he was president. Suppose he went to his cabinet, uh, his cabinet and said, I want you to issue a proclamation that uh, denies the admission of anybody coming from Israel. Could a court look behind that? Uh, and General Francisco conceded, yes they probably could. He said there were a number of safeguards that were in place, one of them would be uh, that the other cabinet officials will all have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and if they receive such a blatantly unconstitutional directive that they would be, you know, what they should do is either ignore it or resign Uh, but that if there was absolutely no evidence to suggest that Israel, one of our closest allies, posed this kind of a threat, uh, that then such a justification, you know, premised on national security, would not be facially legitimate and that a court could look behind that. And then, of course, he went back to say that that was a far cry from the present situation where you had a multi-departmental review and a painstaking process uh, to try to identify countries who provide what was referred to as minimum baseline of information that We need to decide who can safely be admitted to our shores. Uh, And so that that hypothetical, uh, while uh, a a challenging one, was not uh, the situation that we face now.
1: There was a significant number of national security experts. There were, I understand, more than 55 former CIA and deputy CIA directors, counterterrorism chiefs, top diplomats with long records in the Middle East, secretaries of state, even the Republican chairman of the 9-11 Commission, who all came out against the president's travel ban. How significant is that in their amicus briefs and uh, other uh, contributing um, information and opinion on this uh, pending decision?
2: Well, so that's, that's an interesting point. Uh, some of what they raised were statutory arguments. They thought the president's reading of his statutory authority was overbroad and would become the exception that swallows the rule in terms of other limitations that Congress had placed in the Immigration and Nationality Act. A major uh, reason behind their breach was they said, look, this is really kind of counterproductive uh, in that it really doesn't help us stop terrorists. There's a lot of individual vetting. That goes on, and it ends up becoming, if you will, a recruitment tool uh, for ISIS and Al Qaeda. That did not really come up. Those sorts of implications did not come up. I mean, I you know I suppose uh, that there may be some valence uh, to that argument, but there's a trade-off. That is involved. I mean, as we have with sanctuary cities, you will get some people that say, "Well, if we have sanctuary, if we don't have sanctuary cities, people who are victimized, uh, who are illegal immigrants, won't come out of the shadows and talk to the police." And that may be so. But if you have a sanctuary city policy, then you're going to have a lot of very, very dangerous people released and walking on the streets of our cities in the United States. Same thing here. Uh, so on the one side, you can say that to the extent to which this proclamation is perceived as an anti-Muslim ban, it serves as a recruitment tool for terrorists who mean us harm. On the other hand, if we don't put in uh, rigorous, intense or extreme vetting, to use the president's phrase, we run the risk of admitting very dangerous people who are intent on mayhem onto our shores, as has happened in a lot of European countries.
1: Well, again, we can expect to hear from the Supreme Court sometime this summer, probably the latter part of June. And one can only hope it's a clear decision that maintains the separation of powers. John Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great to be with you,
1: Georgie. Appreciate it very much. Again, John Malcolm is vice president for the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies we're going to take a break in just a moment we'll return and talk a little bit about a new um, study and uh, we'll bring you up to date on that we'll also talk with patrina mosley she's the director of life culture and women's advocacy at the family research council there's a new barna study that offers statistics on americans redefinition of family morality and we'll talk with matt staver founder and chairman of liberty council on the california bill that's so broad it could ban books like the bible or at least sections of it all of that coming up later in today's program you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Well, I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited Because once again, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Is presenting a hymn sing Only it's not just a single hymn sing There's an opportunity to participate on the east side As well as the west side And with me in studio is the CEO and the director Of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir Wes Walterman Welcome, it's a pleasure to have you with oh, us Oh, it's
5: always fun to be on your show, Georgine. Thank you so much
1: Well, I have to tell you, I get a little excited when you're here because you are such a master at what you do in not only directing the choir, but... Um, selecting music and and just orchestrating everything that happens with the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, and then to innovate the the hymn sing that gives the the church an opportunity to come Mm -hmm. together from various places and to lift their voices in these familiar hymns is is just a thrilling evening, and I have not attended one that I haven't cried in, so (laughs) thank you very much. (laughs) I cry
5: every time. You know, there's no greater place to be than between a, a, a choir of 120 and 1,500 people singing uh, songs about the Lord and lifting up his name and everyone singing. That's the beauty of this. Yes. This yeah. hymn sings. Everyone sings.
1: Now I have to admit when we, f- we did the first one, I wasn't sure the congregation would join in and I was amazed mm-hmm. to hear the voices, the throng of voices. They knew the songs because these are hymns that we all share in common. Yes. It doesn't matter if you're a Baptist or if you're matter. a no. Lutheran, these are songs that we all know. You could hear the parts being sung and yep. people were singing with passion. It, it reminded me of, you know, years ago when the church, uh, Sing just hymns, and we all knew those those common songs
5: oh, absolutely, and I just feel like there's a decline in hymns in churches today because there's so many great new courses mm-hmm. being written, and so hymns kind of get left out and in fact, Sunday at our church, we had three great courses, and uh, some people say, Well, i just can 't worship to the newer courses i don 't know the well you, you can worship if you put your mind to it, you can just worship. And praise the Lord, but it is a little bit difficult when the songs are a little bit unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. They might be voiced uh, higher. I'm a bass, so it's it's tough for me to sing some of the newer courses. So the third, the fourth song in, all of a sudden the whole band laid out, and all of a sudden all we sang was A "Great as I Faithfulness." And I was in the very back row, and there's there's a there's a uh, there's an aisle behind me, and all of a sudden I hear this tenor singing out super loud. And it's a guy getting ready to serve communion after the song was finished and everyone around me was singing the parts to great is thy faithfulness. It's something that everyone knew.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I love that it tethers the younger generation to the older generation, yes. and we can all come together Absolutely. and agree on the rich theology and the lyrics of so many of these great hymns. Absolutely. Well, this year you're doing something a little bit different. In years past, there's been an evening of, uh, of hymn singing at New Hope Church. This year, we have an opportunity for the East Side as well as the West Side. Tell us a little bit about the split.
5: Well, the split happened because um, we were really getting a lot of people coming out to New Hope. And with thought, you know, if we can split this off and do one in the east, one in the west, and do it over two different weekends. Those who want to participate in both weekends can do that, and those who live on the east side can come to this one. Those who live on the west side can come to this other one. And so it's the same exact show. We're just doing it two times in a row. So the band is super excited. The 120 Voice Choir is super, super excited to be part of this. And we're doing uh, dinner as well at, at both shows. So before the concert starts, we do a big chicken dinner for those who want to uh, pay $10 and, and, and you know, fill their t- stomachs before they come, and they fill their hearts with music.
1: Kind of like having a potluck back in the it day, yeah, and then you exactly. go <laughs> go have the service. Oh, yeah. Well, let me give you the details because we're talking about two opportunities, and you may want to come to both, let's be honest, two opportunities to, to join us in the hymn sing, and as Wes was saying, this is an opportunity for all of us to sing together. Uh, the choir is singing, you're singing, and that's what makes this a beautiful evening. Now, the first hymn sing is going to be held on Saturday, May the 5th, at Southwest Bible Church, and again, this is the first time, the hymn sing has been held by the Singing Christmas Tree Choir on the West Side. Now, Southwest Bible Church, they're on uh, Southwest Weir Road, just off of uh, Murray. And the uh, the event begins at 6 o'clock p.m., but you have an opportunity to join us for some chicken dinner at 4.30. The cost of the dinner is $10, and you can make that reservation when you secure your tickets. Now, The admission to this hymn sing is free. We do require tickets to make sure we can accommodate everybody. Um, So you do need to call and make that arrangement, and you can decide if you want to join us for dinner as well. And then there are opportunities if you would like to reserve special seating. That's a a possibility as well, and you can talk with uh, our folks on the phone line, Patty, when you call for that. Now, the second hymn sing is going to be held on Saturday, May the 12th. That's the following Saturday, and that's going to be at New Hope Auditorium on Southeast Stevens Road. That's right by Clackamas Town Center in Happy Valley. Once again, it will begin at 6 o'clock p.m., but you have an opportunity at 4.30 to join us for chicken dinner, and it's going to be a great evening. Um, That's going to be served prior to the Hymn Sing at 4.30. The singing begins at 6 o'clock. Now, again, the cost of the dinner is $10 per person, and you can purchase that when you reserve your general admission tickets. You can also ask about preferred seating tickets for the Hymn Sing, which is uh, a lot, but... uh, Pretty excited that it's coming up this, yeah. uh let's say, not this, but next it's, weekend. It's a
5: week from this Saturday. Actually, Wow. Yeah, wow. You know, A lot of people don't realize that uh, the Portland singing Christmas tree has been around for 56 years and it's, it's a, it's a choir of 300 strong and uh, I would say ninety ninety-eight 98% are, are Christians. And there's over a hundred churches represented in our collective group of singers that, that get together every fall and we kind of kick off the Christmas season. And so, um, it just needs so so many christians that want to be part of this that are part of the choir they said can we do something on the opposite calendar year and so that's kind of where this was born and we thought what 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 better place to to do this than in a local church yeah. and do uh, uh, about 25 26 27 different hymns for everyone to enjoy so it's been a really really fun experience the last three years with the Hymn Sings.
1: And you've got a wonderful band that accompanies the music that's being played. There are times when the band just drops out and all you hear are the voices. Yes. And I'm telling you, it is just a little glimpse of, a little taste of what heaven is going to be like because there's a very diverse audience of people from, you know, every denomination, I suppose you can imagine, Mm -hmm. that have come together around these common hymns of the faith. And it's just a beautiful thing. If you need to be encouraged, if you need to be inspired, maybe even a little bit challenged, this is a great opportunity to come together and sing. Now, my guess is some of our listeners might think, well, I don't, I'm not that great a singer. Uh, are they invited to join us? Oh, of course. Can, can, can st- you make a great a joyful noise and still be welcome?
5: <laughs> of course. And if they don't want to sing, they just want to take it all in. That's that's entirely up to them. We'll have words up on the screens for everybody. Uh, and and you just kind of gravitate to your part. I'm a bass. I always go to the bass part. If you're an alto, you're going to go to the alto part. And just things that you grew up with as a child or maybe a teenager um, and all of a sudden these songs and these hymns come back like it was yesterday.
1: Yeah, yeah. And again, this is being presented by our family at the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Now, I can't have you in the studio without talking just a little bit about the next season of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree mm-hmm. and when tickets will be made available.
5: They'll be made available, uh, I think, within the next month. And uh, we're, we're uh, actually going to a meeting this evening for the final stages of planning this year's music. And let me tell you, it is it is going to be one of the best seasons we've ever had in terms of music and the caliber of music. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited to unveil that this, this uh, actually, this Christmas season.
1: Oh, wonderful. And you can uh, check out more information on that at the Portland Singing Christmas Trees website. Now, by the way, if you want to um, uh, secure your free admission tickets, you can call Patty at 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-8733, and you can get all the important details uh, there about the upcoming hymn sing on both the east side and the west side. Now, again, the details are on Saturday, May the 5th, 6 o'clock p.m., there's an opportunity to join us for the hymn sing at Southwest Bible Church. This is the first time that we've done this on the west side, and Southwest Bible Church is on Southwest Weir Road in Beaverton. And of course, you can join us for dinner at 4.30. The chicken dinner is $10 per person, and you can call and make your reservations and, and pay for that when you call to get your tickets. And our second hymn sing will be held on Saturday, May the 12th, and that's going to be at New Hope Auditorium, and they're located on Southeast Stevens Road in Happy Valley. And again, chicken dinner at 4.30. The show begins at 6 o'clock p.m. The hymn sing is going to feature members of the Portland Singing Christmas, uh, Christmas Tree Choir, and you, you probably already know what a beautiful collection of voices that is uh, i'm going to have an opportunity to share some music timothy Greenwich and on the uh, second showing coral walterman who's got a beautiful operatic voice will also be uh, presenting music at this uh, this great opportunity now by the way the hymn sing is a free will offering event tickets are needed for admission and again to get that um, arranged you can call 503-557-87 Thirty-three. Now, bring your women's Bible study group, bring your youth group, go to the nursing home and bring some folks with you. Uh, whoever you um, congregate with, encourage someone to come who just might really enjoy hearing songs that they don't have the opportunity to hear very often or sing very often, because this is going to be a rich evening and it just can't help but uh, become an evening of, of worship.
5: You know, if you're wondering, uh, can I can I bring my kids? Uh, absolutely. We, in the past, we've had entire families come with kids uh, uh, even two years old, three years old, that are engaged in the concert because it's all music and there's something for everybody.
1: Absolutely. Again, that telephone number for a Patty is 503 557 8733. Wes, thank you so much for talking with us today.
5: Always a privilege. Looking thank you. Looking forward
1: to uh, the first Saturday, May the 5th, and the second Saturday, May the 12th. Hope to see you there.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the George Rice Show. First of all, I wanted to say thank you to those of you who gave generously to the African New Life Radiothon yesterday. We focused on the small town of Kajeo, which is really a refugee camp that's become a permanent residence for many. And the uh, effort to provide meals for kids who are in schools there uh, was very successful. I know our sister station, The Fish, continued that effort earlier today or throughout the day today. So we just want to say thank you for your generosity. And then I came across an article in Christianity today to give us a glimpse of what's happening in the church there. Now you'll recall that uh, the government has asked Africa new life to come into the public school to manage the school. They're providing all the teachers. They're providing biblical training, which uh, they consented to they're providing meals and they're really uh, enhancing the uh, entire community there. But I wanted to tell you what's happening with the church in Rwanda and again, Christianity Today reporting from Kigali points out that authorities have closed more than 7,000 churches across the country and that includes 714 of them in the capital city of Kigali. That's in the span of two months and they've uh, closed them down for failing to comply with health, safety and noise regulations. Now if you've been to some churches in Rwanda, the noise regulations, I get that. Well, underscoring the seriousness of the campaign, a lightning strike killed 16 worshipers and injured 140 others at a Seventh-day Adventist church there that had not installed a mandated lightning rod. So the, uh, the pretext is that the facilities that many of these churches are meeting in simply are unsafe. Well, lawmakers are now debating new regulations in an effort to prevent fraudulent behavior among the East African nations mushrooming churches. Well, President Paul Kagame, he welcomed the shutdowns, but was stunned at the scale. 700 churches in Kigali alone, he said during a government dialogue in March, are these um, boreholes that give people... Water. I do not think we have as many boreholes. Do we even have as many factories? This has been a mess, referring to the high number of churches there. He went on to say his country doesn't need so many houses of worship, and explaining that such a high number is only fit for bigger, more developed economies that have the means to sustain them. Now, again, presumably this is the context of the safety. Uh, the meeting places for these churches. Well, many church leaders disagree, and six Pentecostal pastors were arrested for organizing protests. Rwandan authorities maintain the churches were in such poor physical condition that they threatened the lives of churchgoers. Well, the majority are small Pentecostal gatherings, so many are shepherded by charismatic preachers who draw followers with promises of signs and wonders, and often these churches meet in houses, in tents, or crude structures that lack adequate water systems. They often blast sermons down streets through mega Phones and loudspeakers. I've been there and heard it. Well, the existing law on civil society organizations permits Rwandans to open churches and register after a period of months and doesn't require pastors to go through any training. By contrast, in a new law specific to faith-based organizations, that's going to require potential pastors to get a theology degree before they plant a church. Now, under the new law, and we don't know what that means in the context of Rwanda, a degree, what kind, what level of training is required. But under the new law expected to be adopted by year's end, churches must also obtain government certification. that building requirements such as adequate plumbing and parking have been met and renew it annually. Well, some evangelical leaders understand the motivation for the crackdown, saying protecting churchgoers equates to protecting life. With the rise of the prosperity gospel, many people tend to ignore theological training and start churches, as uh the president of the Evangelical Free Church in Rwanda and a leader with the Evangelical Alliance of Rwanda. He supports the government's efforts to have qualified, trained leaders who know what they're doing and teach right doctrine, end quote. Everything needs a professional for guidance, he says. One cannot be an expert in, it, in everything. Well, Pastor Zebrani Habamani, of uh, a ministry there said that the closures are aimed at streaming church activities, especially around safety and hygiene. He said of the 267 churches in his Southern district, 131 were found to be without toilets. How can a church operate without a toilet, he asks. Such people should not even complain about the closures. Well, likewise, another pastor of Kigali's Christian Life Assembly says churches should meet standards. He says it's not good to start a church that is uh, laughed at, as its mockery sends a bad example to society. Well, another minister of New Life Baptist, or rather Bible Church, one of Kigali's biggest Pentecostal congregations, they favor the crackdowns as well, saying he values the life and safety of people who worship in substandard buildings. Churches should be law-abiding, and there must be a government supervision to ensure that the practices of church leaders don't affect or harm church goers, some of whom are illiterate and could easily be taken advantage of. Now, I'm not sure if he's advocating church oversight in terms of what's being taught or the facilities that they are safe. Some Rwandan Christians think it's better to have fewer but better churches to choose from. Uh, one uh, uh, parishioner who goes to a 1,000 member Evangelical Restoration Church in Kigali's uh, Masoro neighborhood says the government should have acted against exploitative pastors a long time ago. Some churches leak when it rains, yet everyday churchgoers tithe. Where do church leaders take the money, she asks. I find the government's move reasonable to protect the citizens. Well, we're talking about Rwanda. That certainly is not the same uh, rules that we see applied here, but there are concerns about the safety of parishioners. Plenty of others disagree. One uh, lawyer who attends St. Peter's, an Anglican church in Kigali's uh, uh, Romera neighborhood, thinks the decision by the government is too harsh. You cannot stop people from going to God, she says. And how can you ask... um, about parking spaces when the locations of some churches have no access to roads. Well, one bishop, president of the Churches Forum, which represents 180 congregations in Kigali's uh, district there, understands the government's argument that some preachers deceive their congregations with misleading sermons, but he insists that many church leaders don't do this, yet the new rule will prevent the planting of new churches. So there's concern about what the impact will be, even if the motivation is understood. The decision was rushed without warning, he goes on to say some church leaders are poor and cannot get money to go for theological training the government should have negotiated with these leaders instead of closing their churches Still another um, Kigali pastor, Omega Church is the name of his congregation, said the forced closures were uncalled for and humiliated pastors before their congregations. He said churches not only share the word of God with their members, but also government-supported messages like encouraging parents to send children to school. After this humiliation, will the government again tell us to promote their programs to the people? Well, following the arrests, other pastors feared to um, vent their Uh, displeasure and requested anonymity. The government is harassing us because we tell the masses, among other things, about bad governance, something the officials don't want to hear, says another pastor, raising questions about what's at the core of This latest crackdown, yet Bible Society of Rwanda member Krisa Umangeja says that the government must examine the the nation's churches because many church leaders exploit their followers. She says too many pastors drive expensive cars, live lavishly, while their loyal followers sell their possessions to tithe with the expectation that they too will be blessed. Well, um, one uh, Justice Kangwagye, the uh, Rwandan Governance Board official who oversees faith-based organizations, said the government is not trying to permanently close the churches, but is merely asking them to meet existing health and safety standards for the size of their crowds. Freedom of worship does not mean you keep churchgoers in a substandard church that is likely to fall. And again, the the mitigating circumstance which reinforced um, the call to shut down these facilities uh, was the... um, Uh, failure of one church in particular to install a mandated lightning rod. 16 people, 16 worshipers were killed. 140 others were injured. So one of the challenges for Rwanda and its its church. Well, tomorrow on the program, we are going to talk with uh, Ryan Anderson. His book is titled When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Uh, He'll be joining us uh, tomorrow. And uh, then on Friday, we'll lighten up and look forward to uh, taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. Want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your. And by the way, don't forget to check out the uh, hymn sing coming to um, let's see Southwest Bible Church on May the fifth and New Hope Church on May the twelfth, presented by the Portland Singing Christmas Tree Choir. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll talk again tomorrow. Good night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.